through 17. First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. This is God's word for us today. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray you'll use our time together today to teach us better how that we might live as sojourners. Teach us to live wisely in a world that is not our own. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen. You can be seated. Exiles, aliens, foreigners, pilgrims, the dispersed, the scattered, strangers. When the Bible paints for us a picture of living as Christians in a lost world, words like those describe us. We once belonged to this world, but now this world is not our home. Perhaps we used to fit in. <laughs> no longer. Jesus said in John 18 that his kingdom is not of this world. Paul said in Colossians 1.13 that we have been transferred. Our citizenship has been moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. And not until the Lord Jesus returns and makes all things new, not until sin is done away with, not until the curse is reversed, will we finally and permanently be at home. The book of 1 Peter is a letter from Peter to a group of people who are experiencing the truth that this world is not our home. We don't fit in. They don't fit in. These people that Peter's writing to are very likely to face hardships and persecutions in the near future. And their society, the people that live around them, they want them to join in in their activities that Christians cannot participate in. The people around them are suspicious of them because they have a new worldview, a different worldview. Over the first chapter and a half of 1 Peter, we've seen much related to the gospel, to comfort Christians who are living in a hard world. And now as we press forward into this really new section of the book, Peter is going to show us just how we are to live in hope as we live in a world that just is not going to understand us. So if you're a note taker, be ready to take down five points that we're going to find as we look more closely at living a Christian life 
in a world that's not our home. If I were given this a title, I would call it Submission in Society. Let's get started with point number one. Are you ready? You with me? Two of you? Three of you? Amen. Appreciate that. I, I always have to check. I never know. Point one is watch out for soul-destroying passions. Watch out for soul-destroying passions. Look with me at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You have to love Christians. That first word in verse 11. Beloved, beloved. You pronounce it however you want to, okay? Some of your translations are going to say something like, dear friends. But beloved is far better, far closer to the word that's used there. Peter is writing to Christians, to those who are, if you're a Christian, those who are beloved of God, chosen by God, rescued by God, children of God. And as Peter begins to instruct, he reminds us first that we are deeply treasured by the God who saved us and that we are actually loved even by our fellow believers in the church around the world. If you're a Christian, if we are Christians, we must see the word of God tell us we are beloved by God. And if we're Christians, we're also sojourners and exiles in this world. And if we are to live as part of Jesus' kingdom spiritually, even while we physically live in a fallen world, we're going to have to fight a major fight. We're going to have to do battle against the sin that's still in our nature, the sin that's still in our flesh. Peter says, I urge you, I implore you. He demands of us that we abstain from the sinful passions that wage war against our very souls. What's funny is here in this section, Peter's not going to spell out what passions he's talking about. But let's get real with one another. Do you really need a list right now? I think if you're a true Christian, if you spend time in the Word of God, If you spend time around other believers who are seeking to be a holy nation, like God calls us in the previous paragraph, I don't think you're going to have any difficulty understanding what are warring lusts that would kill you in your very soul. Do you really have trouble with that? Let me give us a couple categories just because I can't resist. These are things that will kill you, by the way. And brother, if you want to go more, go to any vice list in the Bible, any New Testament list of put this off. Like, go to Colossians 3 and just read the list that are there and say, okay, those are passions that will kill me. Or go to Galatians, right before the fruit of the Spirit, that, that list of things that are of the world. Those things will kill you. But right here, let's just look at two things. Let's do the obvious one. I know this is the obvious one. But even the language fits this. Sexual lust will just kill you in your soul, folks. The world around us is and always has been rebellious against God in the area of human sexuality. 
we can see as far back as Genesis chapter 4. There was a nasty, mean-spirited, murderous, not-a-guy-you-want-to-follow man named Lamech. And you know what stands out about Lamech? He's the first man to throw off God's plan for human flourishing by marrying two women and not just one. We see rebellious sexual immorality in Genesis chapter 6, and it's at a level that brings the judgment of God on the earth in the flood. In Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah demonstrated perversion and violence even in their immorality, and humanity has never changed since then. We've not gotten better. The truth is, from the very earliest days of humanity, one of the most common ways for a human being to show that they hate God and that they want to rebel against God's ways is when that person chooses to fight against God in issues related to sex, to gender, and to marriage. God made humanity. God gave us our sexuality, and it's a good thing. But God gave us, along with that, appropriate boundaries for the experiencing and the expression of our sexuality. God designed marriage to be the one flesh union of one man, one woman for life. And the desire to experience or express your sexuality outside of the bounds of marriage is a desire, it is a passion that wages war against the human soul. Now you know the world would tell us, don't be so sensitive, prudish. The world would say, you guys aren't keeping up with modern times. But what does God say? God says giving in to passions like that it's like letting an enemy army march over your soul. Let's do another passion. How about the passion for wealth or comfort or maybe even fame? The world chases those things. By the way, is wealth a bad thing? I mean, if given the choice between being wealthier or poorer, which would you pick? <laughs> Most of you would choose to be wealthier. But a burning, driving desire for any of those things, a shaping of your life around those things, that will damage your soul. Peter tells us, as beloved children of God, we must abstain from sinful desires and passions that would destroy us. We cannot go along with the world in its embrace of sexual immorality. We cannot go along with the world in its embrace of gender confusion. We cannot go along with the world in making our lives about pleasure or about comfort, about wealth, about fame. We can't live for food. We can't live for drink. We can't live for any created thing. See, we live for the creator. If you're dominated by the creation, you're in trouble. Now, you might say to me, if you were the kind of person to talk back to me, this is the most obvious sermon point ever preached by man. Maybe so. Maybe it is. But have you considered that what Peter says to us here is diametrically opposed? to the kind of advice that we are given by supposed Christians who are ignoring the scripture. And it's exactly the opposite even of the advice given to us by the world around us for how to grow as a church. 
Many churches out there, and, and it's so easy for me to stand here and pick on other churches. I'm not that kind of guy all the time. But you've got to get this. Many churches out there are attempting to draw a crowd by softening and compromising the word of God regarding sin issues. You know that's true, don't you? There, there are conferences being held. There was a conference held just a couple of weeks ago in St. Louis where Christians were told that they don't have to put off their desire. They just have to watch out for how far they let their desire take them. Other groups out there are, are saying, look, God's word really doesn't limit our sexual expression in any way. It just tries to limit our... I don't even know. Sometimes they don't have a, have a limit that they would take it to. But as long as you're committed, as long as you believe it deep down in your heart, you're fine. The world says to us, if you'll just compromise on this issue of sexuality, if you'll just give a little, you know, just, just let it go. Don't be so, again, prudish on this. Hey, the world's going to love you. The world's going to embrace you, church, if you just soften up here. But God says to you and to me that if we want to survive in this world, we cannot give in to sinful passions. Our passions wage war on our souls. And we have to refuse to embrace the passions that the world embraces. The modern liberal Christian view is to say, let's embrace worldly passion because the world will love us. The biblical view says, battle it because it wages war against your soul. We've got to battle our flesh for purity. We don't grow strong in the Lord through compromise with the world. We live as aliens. We live as strangers. We live as exiles. And as aliens, we have to be willing to let the world know that when it comes to issues related to morality, we follow our holy king, not their ways. Watch out for soul-destroying passions. But point number two comes along now. And we want to live rightly as a testimony to Christ. Live rightly as a testimony to Christ. And that's verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter goes here from an internal call for us, fight those dangerous passions that would eat your soul up, and now to something external. We battle passions within, and in doing so, we want to be able to live differently before a world that is watching us. Because how we live in the eyes of the world does matter. Now notice that Peter says here, this is kind of interesting, Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, if you've been following along with us for the past several weeks, you know that I've repeatedly told you Peter is writing to a group of Gentiles in the cities around Asia Minor. So why would he say to these Gentiles, live differently in the eyes of the Gentiles? That seems weird, Travis. And I would suggest to you that Peter's not saying to you, uh-oh, guess what, it's a Jewish audience after all. Instead, what Peter's doing is he's drawing a line of comparison between the saved and the lost. He's drawing a line of comparison between those who follow Jesus and those who don't. In the previous paragraph, what did Peter say that we were? We are a chosen race. We are a holy nation. We are a people for God's own possession. Even though we didn't used to be a people, now we are a people. 
In comparison, Peter says, look, the lost world living around you, they're like the Gentiles were to the Jews of the Old Testament. But the main thing we're supposed to get at here is that the world that lives around the Christians to whom that, that Peter was writing, the world that lives around us, that world is watching. And so for the glory of God, you and I need to live with honorable conduct. We are to live lives that look like we're the people of God for real. Giving into sinful passions from verse 11 that's exactly the opposite of what God wants us to do in front of the eyes of a watching world. Christians, those who do not know Jesus, whether you realize it or not, are paying attention to you. Because they want to see if your life really is different. Or they want to prove that you're just a hypocrite. By the way, how many of you are hypocrites? Not nearly enough of you said yes, by the way. We are. Let's not be fools. We are. But we try to fight it. When you and I obey the word of God, and when we uphold the standards of God, people around us might not like it. They may feel guilty as they see righteousness in comparison to sinfulness. But when people around you and me see us act just like them, they see us dishonor God the same way they dishonor God, they feel justified in the conclusion that there is no real difference between us and them, no real salvation in Jesus, no real change made by the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense to you? If you do everything they do, why would they think there's anything different in you? Look at the end of verse 12. Notice two true things. First is that the world around us is going to speak evil against us. Peter doesn't give any way out of that. If we hold in any way to a biblical understanding of Christianity, the world around us is going to speak evil of us. When a person is lost, they oppose God in their heart of heart. And so, if you and I represent to them the things of God, they hate it. And I'll let you in on a secret. It really doesn't matter in this point how nice you are, how nice you try to be, no matter how giving you try to be, no matter how sweet you make your disposition. At the end of the day, the world is going to oppose you if you represent Jesus Christ. Now, you might say to me, Travis, that can't be true. Then you want to argue about that, by the way? I just want to know, so I know up front. I want to give you one piece of evidence, okay? I'll call one piece of evidence, one witness to the stand. Ready? Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only perfect person to live in human history, right? Would you guys agree that Jesus is the most loving person to live in human history? The most perfectly loving person to live in human history? The most gracious person in human history? How did the world respond to Jesus? Did the world love Jesus? No, they wanted him dead. And if the world can turn that easily against Jesus, what would possibly make you think that you can somehow win them over with your personality better? But Peter does tell us, and this is important, if we do keep our conduct pure before the Gentiles, even though they speak evil against us, which they will, they can see our good deeds and they will glorify God. 
Now, when will they glorify God? They will glorify God on the day of visitation. It's an interesting phrase. The, the final phrase there in verse 12, on the day of visitation, is one of those that scholars debate, and they seem to still debate it. Because it could be a reference to one of two things. The day of God's visitation on a person can be the day that God gives them grace and mercy and salvation. Or the day of visitation from God can be a reference to the day that Christ returns and brings final judgment. And in truth, either interpretation in this passage would work. Because on the one hand, it is surely true that people around us are influenced by the lives and the character of Christians. If you're saved, if you're saved, think about this with me. Is it not true that one of the tools that God used in drawing you to himself was the character and the life of other Christians? How many of you came to Christ with no influence from other Christians? Probably not many. It could happen, but it's rare. But my guess is for you, there was a family member there was a friend, there was a Sunday school teacher, there was some godly person that you said, wow, there really is something different in them. There's something in them that I desire. But see, many of us, many of us have been strongly influenced by the Christian character of other believers. That, that's just part of it. Now, we have reformed in our church name. We intentionally teach the sovereignty of God in our salvation. You guys are still cool with that, right? We, we teach that God is the ultimate, final cause of our salvation. But Reformed theology does not, and certainly should not, ignore the fact that God uses means to accomplish his sovereign ends. So you know what that means, Christians, what that last sentence means? Prayer matters. Love matters. Character matters. Witness matters. And Peter is arguing here, on the one hand, that Christian character, Christian godly behavior in the eyes of the world will lead to people glorifying God on the day of visitation. And part of that is the truth that some people are going to see genuine Christianity in other people, and that's going to be a tool that God uses by his sovereign power to draw people into a relationship with himself. Now, people are going to believe. Why? Because God brings a dead heart to life. People are going to believe because God sovereignly moves in their hearts. People will turn from sin and they will trust in Jesus, and they're going to give God glory because God is the one who visits them with his grace. And... When God is the one who saves, which he is, we still get to rejoice when God chooses to use our lives and our witness as tools in his hand to accomplish that glorious work. Now, on the other hand, the day of visitation reference well could be a reference to the day of the return of Jesus. There have been three times already in this book that I can count off the top of my head where Peter points the church to the day of the Lord, the day of Jesus' return to earth. You can look back at verses 5, verse 7, verse 13 in chapter 1, immediately, if not more. 
And Peter has a running theme in this book that tells us that living as Christians in a fallen world means you've got to get your heart and your mind set, not on this life, but on the return of Jesus and the glory that is to come. Jesus is going to return. Jesus has not returned yet. And when Jesus does return to this earth, physically, visibly, bodily, Jesus is going to vindicate his people. Jesus is going to show that the Christians that the world despises actually are the people of God. Jesus is going to show that that people who have hated Jesus hate God and have turned their backs on their only hope for salvation. Jesus is going to show that God is just. And Jesus will demonstrate the glory of God. Now we know, friends, that every knee will bow to Jesus' lordship when he is seen in his glory. You get that, right? Even the lost, even those who are going to be judged by Jesus, will glorify Jesus and bow before him. But they will glorify Jesus as they demonstrate that Jesus is perfectly just in how he judges sin. They will remember the Christian behavior and the Christian witness of true believers around them even as they despair over the fact that they did not want God and they chose to reject him. The lost will glorify God on the day of their visitation too. Now what you and I are supposed to remember here is that our conduct as Christians, the command is that our conduct be honorable. We're supposed to love God. We're supposed to battle against sinful passions. And we're supposed to live for God's glory. And when we do those things, we do things that matter. Our lives are a testimony to the lost. They are. Now listen to me again. Be really careful because I don't want you to mishear me. (laughs) When I talk about witnessing or being a testimony with your life, You don't share the gospel if you don't use words. You all have heard the St. Francis of Assisi quote, right? Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Okay, if that statement is left to itself, it's stupid. You cannot preach wordlessly. The gospel is content. The gospel is a truth that must be communicated. You cannot actually preach the actual gospel to lead to salvation without words. By the way, Francis did not say what he's quoted as saying either. He uh, actually was writing a letter to a person who wanted to preach like from a pulpit and wasn't allowed to yet because he hadn't gone through all of the appropriate ordination. And Francis told that person to preach with his life even when he can't preach in a pulpit. But Francis was not saying, don't worry about knowing the gospel, just be a good person. That was not his truth. The gospel requires words. We have to communicate a clear gospel with words. But understand this, obedience to the commands of God brings God glory. And when Jesus returns, or when Jesus saves a lost person's soul, God shows us that honorable Christian behavior does matter. And so what we do at this point, the whole point is that you and I are to live rightly before God as a testimony to Jesus Christ. So how do we live honorably in this world? Peter's going to show us in the next section, and we're just going to get into the beginning of it right now, and we'll see how it is that you and I can live honorably 
in our relationship to the government in this lost world. That's what the third point takes us. And I'm going to call it submit to authority in society. Submit to authority in society. Look at verses 13 and 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So what we just learned right there is that submission in society is a mark of genuine Christian behavior. To submit to authority over you is to throw off the sinful human passion for you to always get your way and for you to be the one who rules over everything you do. By the way, it's hard. But submission to authority looks Christian. Now, I want to go ahead and say this now at the outset of this section because it's going to come up multiple times over the next several weeks. Please hear this. Submission to authority in no way devalues a person. Submission to authority, in fact, glorifies God as it makes us look more and more like Jesus. Remember, Jesus is and always has been God. But what does Philippians 2 tell us Jesus did? He chose to let go of his rights to take on human flesh and to take on a, being a servant and to allow himself to die to pay the price for our sins. As he walked the earth, Jesus, co-equal with God the Father, chose to submit to the will of God the Father. Jesus, as a child, submitted to the authority of Joseph and Mary. Can you fathom that? God the Son, God the perfect one, submitting to the leadership of imperfect human beings who struggle to grasp his identity. Jesus submitted to parents that left him at the temple. I mean, they thought about him the next day and went back to pick him up, but this isn't good. Submission to authority did not devalue Jesus. Submission to authority does not devalue you. And no, I'm not in any way going into an eternal functional subordination conversation because that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Submission to authority makes us look like Jesus. Peter says, get under the authority of every human... Again, I'm going to guess you've got the word institution in most of our translations, right? The interesting thing is that the Greek word behind the word institution there is the word for creation or creature... Why would Peter call the government a human creature? Because he's not saying submit to every human creature, as in every animal, every, every, every person. Well, back in Peter's day, the Romans had taken upon themselves the practice of deifying emperors. They looked at the emperors as gods. So when Peter uses the word creature for imperial authority, that's the way Peter emphasizes, you know what, y'all, even if Nero is right here in Rome and the one in charge, he's no god. He is a creature just like all other authorities. Governments are creatures. 
Well, in verses 13 and 14, Peter wants us not to try to wriggle out from under authority with technicalities. Whether it's the emperor, whether it's the emperor's underlings, the governors, we're supposed to submit to the authorities we live under. And guys, this isn't new. That was the testimony of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus says the same thing. You all remember Jesus saying, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what's God's. Paul, in Romans chapter 13, really gives us probably some of the clearest teaching on this in Romans 13, 1 through 5, where Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. God has established human government. And in general, government is good. Uh, Mark Dever is actually quoted as saying, almost any government is better than no government at all. Government exists authorized by God to protect the people of a land from evil. Government exists to to guard human flourishing. And even in cases where governments are corrupt, even those governments are often still better than the murderous chaos that ensues if a government is removed without being replaced. Now, whether your political science lets you agree with that thought or not, God tells us this. God has established government. God has said that government as a concept is good, and you and I, Christians, are supposed to live subject to our governments to the glory of God. So even as we talk about how in a moment, let's at least agree that, in general, God tells you and me, submit to the government. That means you and I are supposed to obey the laws of the land. That means, Christians, we pay our taxes and we don't cheat on our taxes. That means, Christians, because I know you do, that means we obey the traffic laws. You shouldn't laugh at that. (laughs) Heaven's sake. We don't steal. We don't do violence against the police. We live as faithful subjects in our land. Now, we do not say that we follow the government's lead without ever an exception. Peter says, why does government exist? To punish evil and praise the good, right? And if that gets completely turned around, there are times we can't follow the government's lead. If the government attempts to force us to participate in something God has forbidden, we can't follow If the government attempts to forbid us from doing what God commands us to do, we cannot submit. But outside of those areas, you obey the law of the land. We obey our leaders, in short, until the commands of our leaders attempt to force us to rebel against a higher authority, the commands of our God. 
Now, Christians, if the government attempts to forbid Christians from worshiping, we're not going to be able to obey. Although we might have to find some weird places to meet. And we'll do it. If the government ever tries to mandate abortions for large families the way that China did in the evil one-child policy, we have to rebel. But in general, in general, our attitude toward the government and toward the law is to be an attitude where we try to obey, where we try to live peaceably, and we try to change the world, not through political rebellion, but through the spread of the gospel and the preaching of the word. Fourth point. Submit to authority to glorify God. Submit to authority to glorify God. 15 and 16 keep the same thoughts kind of going here. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So here's another motivation, uh, another motivation uh, for our peaceful obedience to the law. We will glorify God as we silence the false, foolish harsh, nasty, mean-spirited accusations that people would like to make against us. You see, back in the Roman Empire, accusers of Christians might have tried to say Christianity is a subversive political movement. After all, Christians won't bow down to the emperor. They won't make offerings to the images of the emperor. And Peter tells the church, listen, as we live in obedience to the law, as we live in obedience to the leader and every other thing, Christians can show that while we may not be able to participate in the worship of false gods, Christians are good citizens. We don't try to overthrow governments. What do we do? We try to live simple, quiet, peaceable lives as we share the good news of salvation in Jesus. And, God, and by the way, if ever there was a leader who needed to be overthrown, because like right now, right now there are Christians who would hear what I've just said, and they'd say, yeah, that's true, but Peter didn't have our president. Peter was under Nero! At least a little bit. Nero, the evil, insane, murderous, burned the city down and blamed the Christians because he wants to see a pretty fire, Nero. If Peter said, submit to him until you can't, what do you think we're supposed to do in our world? During the reign of Nero, God inspired Peter and Paul to tell us to submit to our leaders. I think that's telling. Now, in our culture, you get to participate in political activity. You're, you're, you're part of the Constitution. So nothing in these verses are telling a Christian, don't work to change evil laws. We ought to work to change evil laws. In fact, we vote. Some of us get into debate. Some people lobby for righteous legislation. Great. But what we do not do is we do not defy the law if the law does not go against the command of God. And verse 16 makes it pretty simple. Live free, but don't use freedom as a way for you to do evil. So, you know, for the sake of living under the name of God, we live rightly. We don't cause civil unrest for our own personal benefit. We obey laws until the laws that we obey would defy the clear command of God, and then we can't obey. And we never, never use our religious freedom to do things that would dishonor the Lord. 
living in a political world is hard. There's a lot of complication behind this that you've got to reason out and pray through. But what we have to recognize is the church is not a political entity. Church members are to live as faithful citizens in society. We're supposed to submit to our leaders. We're supposed to, yeah, I mean, if you want to participate in the, in the political process, do it. Do it legally. Do it passionately as much as you want. But participate as a faithful citizen for the glory of God. And recognize this, friends, what will truly transform our land, what will truly lead to better laws, what will lead to the glory of God is when the people of God share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the people around them. And as the Lord converts people, the Lord is going to lead the land to laws that match his character and which truly praise the good and punish the evil as God has established government to do. That's what we're supposed to do. Now let's wrap up. Peter's got a summary here, and we've got to get to it. Fifth point, develop respect for all people. Develop respect for all people. Verse 17, this is so great. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. There are four calls there to honor people, and they're all about human respect and human dignity. And, and I think really the only way to handle this is to see them in two pairs, and they're very important pairs. It's actually a chiasm, if you guys like that in Greek. Um, in the first pairing, we're told, honor everyone, very general, lower thing, but higher, love the brotherhood. General to specific, lower priority to high priority. In general, Christians, honor all people respect every human life because every human life matters every human being is created in the image of god you know that right that's why we battle for life that's why we battle to to end evils like abortion because we know that human life matters inside the womb this is why we're not pro-euthanasia because every human life matters until god takes people home we struggle for the value of every human life and that's why we will fight for the rights even for people who disagree with us to disagree with us and be treated as human beings because they are human beings made in the image of God and they have worth. But even more narrowly, yes, we honor everyone, but we are to love the brotherhood. See, you're supposed to respect every human life, but your deepest affection, your deepest love is to be for the church of the living God, the people that we are united with together for worship and for ministry. You're supposed to respect everybody, but you're especially supposed to have your heart set on the people of God. Love your church. Then Peter gives us another parent. It kind of reverses the order of importance, right? It goes from greater down to lesser. Fear God, honor the emperor. And in that pairing, obviously, God is first and the emperor is lower. Honor God, obey the law. That's supposed to be part of the lives of Christians. And in fact, we honor God well when we obey every law we can obey so long as that law does not violate the word of God. We are, we're exiles in a land not our own. And God tells you and me, honor the Lord while you live here. How? Honor God by battling against the, the sinful desire that's inside you. Honor God by living well before the lost world so that they can glorify God. Because they will glorify God either when they are saved or when Jesus comes back. They're going to glorify God whether they want to or not. But how do we live in the here and now? We don't try to do away with government. 
We live under the government God has given us so long as the government doesn't try to command us to violate the word of God. And we live with respect for all human beings, including our leadership. But most of all, we live loving the Lord and we love the church that bears his name above any other loyalties that we have other than our spouses and our children. And let's remember this. Our message for the Lord is not a message of politics. Our message is this. You and I, every human being, needs to be forgiven by God, by grace, through Jesus Christ. If you want life, if you want to be forgiven, you must turn from sin and trust in Jesus for mercy. He died, he rose again, he bore the wrath of God, and he has said everyone who will come to him in faith and repentance will be saved. So I urge everyone, don't focus so much on government. Don't focus so much on laws and politics. I mean, you can be, be a participant all you need to be. But make the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ central. Submit to Jesus and glorify him. Come to Jesus and be saved. Our God is the king above all kings, and he's going to rule for eternity. Let's bow together and let's pray. Lord, we are in desperate need of you to shape this out right for us. The truth is, Lord, even as much as we just talked about this, it's very simplistic. We need you, God, to grant to us life and mercies and wisdom it's not so easy to know which law we have to fight against and which law we have to accept but God make us a people who gain a good reputation even in the eyes of a hateful world as we love you and obey you and do exactly what you call us to Father forgive us for forgive us for any time that we have been disrespectful to people that you've put in charge of us. Because we do that. It's easy. Forgive us for rebellion when it didn't have anything to do with your glory. Forgive us for prayerlessness when you've commanded us to pray for our leaders. But then, Lord, I plead with you in the name of Jesus by your power for your glory. Bring this nation to repentance. Because we are a murderous, vile, immoral people. And if you don't change us, we will earn every ounce of wrath you want to pour out. We already have. So I pray for our leaders. I pray for lost leaders in Congress, lost leaders in the White House, lost leaders on the judges' benches around the nation. God, would you massively save souls and change worldviews? And God, for every one of us, we need you to save our soul and change our worldview that we would submit to you. Bring that for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.